Well, good afternoon, Storehouse family. Thank you for joining us online this, uh, this afternoon. If you are new and online with us, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McKellen. Obviously, we did not gather this morning for our worship gathering. And I just want to say thank you for your grace and patience on a last-minute change that had us all scrambling to make sure that you had all the details and communication necessary uh, so that you are aware and informed this morning. Uh, <clears throat> today we're going to find ourselves, as we continue in this Advent series, we're going to find ourselves in a very large chunk of Scripture. And so we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to work our way through all of Isaiah 53. And so it's a large chunk of scripture, but I'm going to keep it brief uh, as we move through this in chunks. Uh, while you open or load your Bible this afternoon, uh, I have two announcements for you, uh, and then we'll dive into our time. Uh, the first announcement is that services will resume next week on December 20th, so that's seven days from now. Uh, we will resume services next week here at the incubator at 10.30 a.m. Um, the second announcement is that we will, as we continue to move forward, uh, we invite you to join us for our Christmas Eve service also happening here at the McAllen Incubator on Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. Uh, and so as we move forward uh, toward these two dates at the very least, we're going to continue to monitor the health and safety guidelines here at the incubator. We're going to continue or we're going to continue to hold to that. We're going to monitor any updates from our county health officials. And in addition to that, um, if there is any changes between now and then, rest assured that we will hook y'all up with all of that communication as soon as it gets in. Uh, so yeah, those are the two dates I have for you. Next week, December 20th, services resume at 10.30 a.m. here at the Incubator. Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m. also here at the incubator. With that being said, let's dig into our time because we have a lot of scripture to walk through. And again, we're going to walk through it in chunks so that it is not as intimidating this morning. I'm about to hook you up with an understatement, and that is that this year has been a challenging year. The 2020 year of COVID has placed a great deal of stress inconvenience, and for many, tragedy. It has also been a year of growth and reflection and maturity. And while I know that it seems like all we hear about are COVID updates, I want to highlight two things that I believe this season has exposed in us. The first is control. Control over what we cannot control or simply what we don't like. And the second is whether or not we actually trust in the Lord Jesus, just like our bios on social media say we do. You see, in less than a year, we have learned that we hate being inconvenienced when things are not going according to our plan, whether they would be good, bad, or tragic. This season has revealed our lack of self-control. It has revealed our character under pressure and change. 
Additionally, in the midst of change, especially at the last minute, the question of trust in the Lord Jesus seems to be on the back burner and frustrates us even more when asked about it. The truth is, however, everyone trusts Jesus until it doesn't benefit them or suit their needs. Everyone wants to be holy, but no one wants to be sanctified. Everyone wants to be spiritual, but no one wants to be godly. Here's my point, my main idea for our time this afternoon. Our life depends on the person and work of Jesus for us. Because because we are not as in control as we think. Let me say that one more time. Our life depends on the person and work of Jesus for us because we are not as in control as we think. Even though we didn't meet today, we will continue in our series of Advent. And as a refresher from last week, we began by examining the purpose of God's covenant with his people. Formally, we would define a covenant as God entering into a relationship with man on his terms. Relationally, we would say that a covenant is God pursuing his children through Christ. We looked at the promise of the coming of a Savior in Genesis 3, a promise made by God himself that one day a Savior will come to conquer sin, death, and Satan, and that he will be from the seed of the woman. Today, this afternoon, we're going to be looking at the prophecy of this Savior through the prophet Isaiah, written almost 500 years before the birth of Christ. And in this prophecy, Isaiah is going to break down what this Savior, that is Jesus, will endure for our sake and our redemption. Remember, our life depends on the person and work of Jesus for us. Now, because we have such a large chunk of scripture to walk through together, I'm going to pray and then we're going to examine the first set of uh, uh, verses in this text. So let me pray and then, and then we'll continue. <clears throat> Father God, we know that you are not only our good God and our loving Father, but that you are sovereign. That is, nothing that happens is outside of your control or will, and that in that we can take great comfort because the purpose of your will for us is to be sanctified for your glory and our good. Therefore, as we look at the suffering that Jesus endured and experienced for our sake, May our hearts surrender to you and you alone. May our eyes be fixed upon Jesus and may your Holy Spirit mature us in a way that reflects and glorifies you. Father, we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Once again, if you just joined us, we're going to find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 52 
beginning in verse 13, and we're going to walk through this first part of Scripture, which is Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Here we go. So, beginning in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. God, through Isaiah, begins by telling us that this Savior will be rejected so that you and I would be accepted. In this section of Scripture, Isaiah provides us with a picture of the physical and social rejection that Jesus will experience. Isaiah begins by telling us that Jesus, as a person, will not stand out in the crowd. There is nothing that makes him look special or stand out physically, yet he will live in rejection. As Isaiah Isaiah continues to unpack this picture, he tells us that Jesus will experience social rejection and be despised in light of the violence that he will endure. Isaiah tells us that he will be beaten unrecognizably, that he will be rejected. And in this, as people from the outside look in to see what is happening to this servant of God, to see what is happening to Jesus, it will collide with their comfort. And the reason that it collides with their comfort is because they are seeing something that doesn't make sense to them. That there is this good guy who seems to be losing a battle. That he is about to be executed. That he is walking through a tremendous amount of humiliation and torture. It makes them more uncomfortable to see what is going on. Primarily because of their own status as they look from the outside in. They look upon Jesus, Isaiah says says it this way, as one from whom men hide their faces. 
what is happening to Jesus as he begins to experience suffering, as he begins to get beaten, as he experiences all sorts of rejection. It makes those who are looking in, the spectators, Isaiah says it uh, this way, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He's talking about people who are looking at what is happening to Jesus and the experience that Jesus is encountering and enduring is making them feel uncomfortable. Therefore, they reject him. Therefore, they despise him. Therefore, they set him as an outcast as if he has been diseased or as if he carries this disease with him. And so they reject him with shame and they despise him and they are confused. What Jesus will encounter and experience collides with their world of comfort. As I was working through the sermon this week, I couldn't help but be reminded about specifically the COVID season. You see, over the last couple of months, whether it was individuals who became victims of COVID or people who tested positive, one of the biggest studies that has been poured out there is that in light of shame culture. And when it comes to the context of COVID, um, I was speaking with a social worker this week and asked if there was any literature or statistics out there when it comes to, to shaming others in light of COVID. And, and while uh, she told me that she had not come across any of that, experientially, she told told me that when uh, at the hospital, individuals would, for instance, test positive with COVID, they would call family members to come pick them up so that they can go stay at home and get well and get better. And family members weren't even answering the phone call. Family members didn't want anything to do with them. Family members were rejecting them because not only were they diseased with this virus, but because they were diseased, it made them feel uncomfortable. It made them all of a sudden look at them self-righteously. They rejected family members physically. They rejected them socially. And they looked down upon them because what they were experiencing made themselves feel uncomfortable. Similarly, in this section of scripture, as Isaiah tells us that one, there is nothing special about the physical appearance of Jesus, but in this, he will be beaten unrecognizably. And as people see him endure this suffering, they are more uncomfortable with what is going on. Therefore, they shame him and reject him and despise him as if he is the one who is diseased. Now, here is the irony. The irony is in verse 3. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The irony is that the sorrows and grief that Jesus was carrying were not that of his own, but these men. Isaiah, in verse 3, does something really interesting. Up until now, Isaiah has been providing us with this picture, this prophecy of what will happen. But then in verse 3, Isaiah changes his wording and makes it personal. Isaiah says, He was despised and we 
esteemed him not. Up until now, it has been this prophecy. Up until now, it has been people in this prophecy who are uh, looking at what is happening to Jesus. And here in verse 3, he changes course. He changes his wording to make it personal for you and me. That you and I are the ones who would reject him. In this section, Isaiah tells us that Jesus experiences rejection on our behalf so that we would be accepted. And as we move forward, we will see what that looks like. Moving to verses 4 through 6, Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this next section, Isaiah tells us that Jesus was wounded, was mortally wounded so that we would be healed. Isaiah continues to make it personal, bringing us off of the sidelines and into the game by expanding on what this servant would endure. He begins this section with the word, surely. And it's an interesting word in, uh, in the English language, um, but it further explains the irony of what Jesus was enduring. In other words, when he uses the word surely, what he is trying to communicate or what he is communicating is that uh, to our surprise, so further making it personal, so to our surprise, the grief and sorrow that Jesus was carrying was our own. This is what makes what Jesus did such a beautiful paradox. The innocent one bore our grief, our sorrows. And Isaiah continues by telling us the purpose of it with the word for, meaning he, bear, he carried our grief and our sorrow for our transgression and our iniquities. That's the paradox. You're going to hear that word a lot today. That's the paradox of the gospel. That the sinless, suffering Savior bore the grief and sorrow, not of his own, but ours, for our transgression and our iniquities. And this was necessary you see apart from jesus and being reconciled to the father all of us are at war with god all of us are enemies of god yet jesus provides us a way through redemption to be reconciled to the father he says it this way uh, in verses four through six upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. 
that we would be restored back into relationship with the Father through the work of the Son. And if you were to ask, well, for who is this available? For all who would turn to him in faith and repentance because every single one of us is without excuse in our sin. Isaiah says it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Verses 4 through 6 is the heart of this section. If you belong to Jesus, let me me just encourage you with a couple of things. The, The truth is, many of you attempt to carry your sorrow and your grief. And the truth is, it is simply not possible because it is too heavy. And this section isn't me preaching to you to just be happy or to just let go and let God. This is not any of that. This is a turn to Jesus moment. That Jesus, as Isaiah says, bore our grief and carried our sorrows. That in this moment, what you and I need to be reminded of is that when we try, when we attempt to carry our own sorrow and our own grief, inevitably it leads to two things. It's going to lead us to pride. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look how I've picked up myself from my own bootstraps. Or it's going to lead to discouragement. Look at what I can't do. Look at where I still find myself. I'm discouraged. It's worthless. When this happens, for many, it bleeds into working their way back into God's grace. That we understand that we cannot actually carry our own grief and our own sorrow because it's just going to weigh us down. And so when we realize that after, let's say, we have sinned, we try to work our way back into the grace of God. For others, it's worse in the sense that we begin to excuse our sin, that we minimize our sin, comparing it to others, at least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I'm not as bad as her. It could be worse. Or when we uh, rationalize our sin, I had to do this so that X, Y, and Z could happen. Listen to me. The wrath of God was poured out onto the Son of God so that there would be a means by which we are reconciled to the Father through the Son. And for those who find their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, listen to me. He has carried your sorrow and bore your griefs. Which means you can turn to Him and have access to the Father to experience grace and mercy. You do not have to try to march this out on your own. Verses 4 through 6 teach us the beautiful paradox that is the gospel. That this suffering Savior bore your grief and your sorrow on your behalf so that your sin would be forgiven, so that you would be spiritually healed, and so that you would no longer be at war with God. 
The heart of this section isn't let go and let God, but turn to God in Christ. Jesus was wounded so that we would be healed. Verses 7 through 9. Isaiah writes, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Briefly, Isaiah now turns to tell us that Jesus would be condemned so that we would be redeemed. He begins by telling us that Jesus would live a life of rejection by using words like oppressed and afflicted and judged. That when it comes to being oppressed, Jesus would not only live in rejection or experience rejection in light of this humiliation of of heading toward the cross, but that he would be a social outcast that Jesus would be afflicted as he would endure the absolute horror that led to the crucifixion that also includes him being beaten him being whipped a crown of thorns being put over his head his beard being plucked absolutely tortured as he had to carry his own cross and ultimately lead to the humiliation that is the crucifixion that Jesus would be judged falsely, that he would be tried falsely, that crime would be put on him that he did not commit. And yet in this entire moment, he did not open his mouth. And Isaiah uses language that is um, a part of the Old Testament when it comes to atonement through animal sacrifice. He says that Jesus would be the lamb, the innocent lamb that was slaughtered, atoning for the sins of his people. And the truth is, when we hear that, that, that he was crushed, that he was slaughtered like a lamb, that, that's kind of cringe language. We don't want to hear that Jesus was slaughtered, but that's exactly the point of his rejection so that we would be accepted, that when we hear that, it's cringeworthy. We don't want to be a part of that, but the truth is, is, is that it makes us feel uncomfortable, that we're making it about ourselves. And so Jesus endures that for sinners like you and me so that we would be accepted, so that we would be healed, so that we would be redeemed. That is the point. It humbles us. It should make us step outside of our comfort zone because hearing about the death and crucifixion of Jesus is cringe news. That's why Isaiah makes it personal. That's why he gets us off of the sidelines. And rather than hiding behind the pages of our Bible or hiding behind even some really big theological concepts, what Isaiah does is that he pulls us in so that we would know what Jesus has done for us. 
in this prophecy, Isaiah would include that Jesus would ultimately die on the cross between two criminals. We find that in John 19, and that Jesus would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. That's Joseph of Arimathea, found in Matthew 27. Almost 500 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah is prophesying what this Savior will endure, what he will experience, how will he die, and how he will be buried. Verses 7 through 9, Isaiah teaches us that Jesus would be condemned so that we would be redeemed. Moving to verse, verses 10 through 12, Isaiah tells us that Jesus was punished so that we would be justified. Beginning in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Once again, Isaiah tells us here that Jesus was punished so that we would be justified. That is, so that we would be made right before God. I want you to hear that, that cringe type language that we were talking about earlier. The will of the Father was to crush Jesus. You and I need to, need to embrace that, look at that, sit there, reflect there, and stay there for a moment. We, that, that the will of the Father was to crush Jesus for this was the only way possible to attend, or excuse me, to atone for the sins of the ungodly and provide a means of redemption to be reconciled to the Father. Isaiah tells us what the death and ultimate victory of Jesus would accomplish. And I'm going to walk through a couple of those things briefly. One of those is that Isaiah says that he prolongs his days. This is language of the resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where he resurrected on the third day that this suffering Savior would endure this humiliation and rejection and that he would endure this crucifixion and ultimate death. But in the end, he would be victorious because through the power of the Holy Spirit, he would be resurrected, conquering sin, Satan, and death, the promise that God made in Genesis 3. Isaiah continues by using the word that he will see his offspring. The offspring that Isaiah refers to here are God's spiritual children that through the work of Jesus, all who turn to him in faith and repentance would be reconciled to the Father as sons and daughters. 
You see, in light of everything that Jesus endures and through his resurrection, not only would sin and death be conquered, but he, that is Jesus, would be satisfied because the means by which we can be reconciled to God has been accomplished. It is what Jesus cries out loudly in John as he is on the cross screaming, it is finished. The means by which we are reconciled to God are now made possible through the redemption of Jesus. In his victory, Isaiah continues, he would have the spoils of war. Well, what are the spoils? We are. That in his death, in his victory, uh, in his death and resurrection and his victory over death and over sin and over Satan, we would be the spoils of his victory. A couple weeks ago, we walked through a sermon series called Liturgy and we talked about why Sunday gathering was so important. And we nailed it down to the Sunday gathering being so important and so biblical because of the resurrection that we as the church are fruit of the resurrection. This is similar language. In Jesus' victory over death, sin, Satan, hell, and demons, we, the church, are his spoils. In the beauty of this paradox that we call the gospel, Isaiah tells us that Jesus will stand before God and intercede for the same people that killed him, rejected him, and despised him. That's you and me. That he would stand before God, interceding for us so that we might be accepted before God. Isaiah says it this way, so that he would make many to be accounted righteous us the unrighteous on behalf of jesus and his work done for us on the cross would be counted righteous not because of righteousness in us but because of his righteousness and his sacrificial death on the cross for us leading up ultimately to his resurrection and victory over sin satan and hell And I know at this point, as we begin to close, I know at this point we begin to ask, okay, so what's the application? What is it that we must do? Isaiah gives us one thing. And I want you to go back to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Our role this morning is to behold the story and glory of the person and work of Jesus. That's it. When we walk through what Jesus endured for our sake and our redemption, it makes us feel uncomfortable, but it ought to lead us to humility in light of what he has done for us. Therefore, as a result, our role as worshipers this afternoon is to behold the story and glory of the person and work of Jesus. So Christian, when was the last time you simply surrendered and worshiped the Lord? 
That is all that we are being called to do this afternoon. In making the decision to cancel services this morning, yesterday evening, as my staff team and I are scrambling to think through a variety of scenarios with pros and cons and how we're going to communicate, I, I realized almost before making the decision, I realized I had been working through all of these scenarios. I had been thinking through all the different kinds of responses that we might receive. Uh, my anxiety was, was, was getting pretty high, but, um, or I was just becoming anxious. And then I realized at one point, I, at one point I realized I had not simply stopped and prayed. Now I want to be straight up. This doesn't mean that stopping and praying was going to lead to me having this clear answer with all the perfect reasons and responses and everybody was going to be happy. It wasn't that. It was to remember what God has done for me and whose church this really is or whose church this really belongs to. You see, Isaiah points us to the story and glory of the person and work of Christ, particularly in a season where we want to control everything and know everything and we want to be governed by certainty and information. And the truth is, sometimes even when you have some certainty or even when you have a lot of information, you still don't like it. The story and glory of Jesus teaches us, reminds us, humbles us that we ought to be dependent on the person and work of Jesus because we are not as in control as we think. This is not to say that you're going to have all the answers, but this is to say that church, we must be humbled so that we would simply behold, especially in a season of challenge. And finally, if you are joining us and you're, and you're not a Christian, man, I just want to thank you for being here this afternoon. And I want you to know that this, everything that we just walked through in Isaiah, this is available to you. You can come to know Jesus this afternoon. That he is ready to pardon any sinner who turns to him in repentance. He died, the Apostle Paul says it this way, that he died for the ungodly. So let me ask you, are you ungodly? If you, if you are, then turn to the person and work of Jesus, for he has bore the iniquity of sinners like you and me so that you would be restored to the Father. Church, I miss y'all. And the story and glory of the person and work of Jesus must be something that we depend on because we are not as in control as we think. Therefore, let us surrender and humble ourselves this afternoon so that what we would do for the rest of the day and into the week is behold our suffering Savior. I'll see you guys next week. Amen.